So a commentary I was reading as I, this week as I was studying for this passage said two interesting things about it, two interesting things. First, right away in opening to explain this section we're about to go over, the commentary, which was written by this theologian named Tom Schreiner, he said this, quote, virtually all agree that this paragraph is one of the most important in Galatians. And so quickly, I just want us to think about that, that this paragraph and this letter here is quite important. And that's because what we're going to see in it is uniquely, Paul is going to say with clarity, with the Old Testament in the background, what the true biblical gospel of Jesus is. Then the commentary also said this about this paragraph, and this explains a little more of what we're going to be doing this morning. Quote, The paragraph condenses in a tightly packed manner Paul's exegesis or interpretation of Old Testament texts we get a glimpse, presumably, of the kind of arguments that Paul used in the synagogues and other venues when debating with opponents. And as I read that, I thought that was a fascinating point because what that's saying is that in the paragraph we're about to read, because Paul is dealing here primarily with Jewish opponents and because he's talking to them about the gospel and because he's quoting the Old Testament over and over, That all means that here in this paragraph, we probably see in brief what it would have been like to hear Paul in the synagogues 2,000 years ago. And remember, in those synagogues, as Luke records in Acts 18.4, Paul, quote, reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And so that's what we get to see here together this morning in this paragraph. Paul the Jew is going to reason with us and he's going to try to persuade us. Whether again, if we're already Christians or for the first time, he's going to try to persuade us of the truthfulness of Jesus and the gospel. Which leads then to how we'll go through this important paragraph together. So to cover what Paul says here, we're going to ask three pretty basic but important gospel questions which Paul will answer using the Old Testament. And first, we'll ask, why can't we be okay and right with God based on what we do? And then second, we'll ask, and and what did Christ really do for us? And then third, and finally, we'll ask, and what are some results of all of this? And, And as you hear those three questions, perhaps you're seeing that in some ways this is pretty basic gospel But let me just say, church, we need to be reminded of this gospel over and over. And not only that, but uniquely, what we're able to see this morning is Paul talk about the gospel really using the Old Testament. And so our goal together this morning with the Old Testament in mind is to not only believe Jesus in this gospel more and more, but through what we see, it's going to be to be amazed and glorify Jesus because of what he really did for us. But that said, let's then begin our first question in our first section about why we can't be okay and right with God based on what we do. And for this, we're going to be in verses 10 through 12. And as you hear this in a second, remember, in context, Paul is specifically talking about the Old Testament law. He's talking to people who thought and taught that in order to be saved, you, yes, needed to believe in Jesus, but then you also needed to obey the Old Law. And for, all, for us, although none of us in this room, I would assume, probably think that we need to obey perfectly the Old Testament law to be okay with God, I just want to clarify that what we're about to read still applies to us. And that's first, because we still read the Old Testament, 
But then second, it's because although we may not think that we need to obey the Old Testament law to get God on our side, we still subtly often think that what we do gets God on our side. But that's again why our question is, why can't we be right with God and okay with God by what we do? Why doesn't that work? And to answer that, now notice what Paul says in verses 10 through 12. So look down in your Bibles, Galatians 3, 10 through 12. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So we actually see two answers here as to why we can't be okay with God by what we do. Two answers. One's in verse 10, another in verses 11 and 12. And so first, look down again at verse 10, and notice what Paul does here. First, he makes a really bold statement. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And then he backs that up by quoting that long Old Testament verse. And and as for that statement to open up verse 10, this is now, if you want to think of it this way, Paul talking directly to those who, and, and to maybe some of us who subtly think that you can be okay with God by what we do. And we know this because most literally there, Paul actually writes in verse 10, for all who are of works of the law are under the curse. The ESV paraphrases that to all who rely on or trust in works of the law, but literally it just says all who are of works. And this is important because if you remember, Paul's whole point from the last couple weeks we had together to start Galatians 3 was that those who are right with God are, as he says in verse 7, are of faith. Right? In Greek, that preposition for of faith in verse 7 and of works here in verse 10 is exactly the same. And it means something like of those belonging to. And so Paul's making a big distinction. The Bible's making a big distinction. There's those of works and there's those of faith. Or to say it another way, these of works and of faith labels are, are terms are almost like labels for Paul. I mean, who are you? Who am I? What are we like? What do we label ourselves with when we think about how we relate to the living God? Am I of faith or am I more of my works and what I do for him? And the difference, as you can see, is a big deal. Because notice the difference in being of faith and of works is, as we remember in verse 7, those of faith, they receive blessing. But now here in verse 10, Paul's clear, those of works receive the opposite of blessing, God's curse. And and so that's what Paul claims boldly, but then importantly, to back that up, Paul cites that long Old Testament verse in verse 10. And and let me just read that again. As you hear this again, notice how clear the Bible is here. The Bible says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things, written in the book of the law, and do them. And as for this quote, this is from Deuteronomy 27, uh, 26, and, and that's important to know because if you've ever read Deuteronomy before, perhaps you remember that towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, after giving his law, God commands his people to all stand on two mountains. 
First, about half of the tribes are told to stand on Mount Gerizim, which was the mountain that symbolized God's blessing. And then second, the other half of the tribes were told to stand on Mount Ebal, which symbolized God's, or the possibility of receiving God's curse. And then as all the people of Israel were standing on these two mountains, it was read to them God's blessings and curses of the covenant. And real quick, if those words blessing and curse sound strange or confusing, all blessing means is God being favorable towards you, while curse is the opposite. It's, it's God rightly judging you for your sins and giving what your sins deserve, like he did with Adam and Eve when he cursed in Genesis 3 at the fall. And so that's important. That's what happens in Deuteronomy, because now as for Galatians 3.10 here, Paul intentionally quotes a verse from that section to support what he's saying. And specifically, the verse he decides to quote is the last verse in those curses section of Deuteronomy. Meaning in Deuteronomy 27, there's a lot of curses for specific disobedience. But the verse Paul references, as you can see, is summative. It's just a blanket statement about being cursed if you don't obey all things. And so in that quote, God meant and God means that for everyone, if you don't do all things written in the book of the law, meaning if you aren't perfect in your obedience, then we deserve God's curse, not his blessing. We put ourselves not on Mount Gerizim, but on Mount Ebal. We're opposite in our sin of the good and perfect and loving God. And, and now for us, how does that apply? Well, well, very simply, as I'm sure you know, what's implied then here is that being of works, therefore, won't get us on God's side because if you don't obey, if you don't obey everything in your works, then you're in trouble. It's that simple. And guess what? None of us does obey everything. And, and to be clear, this is true of those who were trying to obey the Old Testament law perfectly back then to earn God's favor. And it's true of people today who just kind of think that we need to be good people to be okay with God. Right? Because in both cases, the big issue still is what Paul is addressing here for us. And that's how, to, to be clear, when we're talking about being okay with God and being in a right relationship with God, we're not talking about just needing to be decent people. Right? Because again, we're talking about God. And he's perfect. And so in order to have a relationship with him based on what we do, we ourselves would have to be perfect like him. That's the point. If we decide to label ourselves and our lives as being of works, as being what I do, then we'd have to have perfect works to be in a right relationship with God. But we don't. None of us does. And so again, the point is, We are not on God's side based on what we do, our works. And most specifically for all of us, we need to realize that when we go and consider ourselves and what we do, in in all that, we don't deserve God's blessing. But as the Bible says here, we deserve his curse. And so that's the first answer. That then leads to Paul's second answer to why we can't be okay and right with God on our own. And for those, they're in uh, verses 11 and 12. But just to remind ourselves of what Paul said, we'll read those again. So look down at your Bibles, 11 and 12. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. 
But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So this, now, this answer now is a little more specific than our first one because if our first answer was just blatantly, if we don't obey everything, then we're cursed. Now here, Paul shows us that even in the Old Testament, salvation never was by works. And this matters for us because we should read and love the Old Testament as God's people. I hope you do. But that means we need to know that in the Old Testament, God's people back then were never okay with God based on what they did. Because as we just said, that's impossible. Instead, anyone who's ever been saved and okay with God has only been so by faith. And Paul proves this with two Old Testament quotes. First, in verse 11, he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous, those right with God, shall live by faith. Now, that's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4, one of those small books in your Bible. Um, and that's one of the most quoted Old Testament verses in the whole New Testament. And as for context there in Habakkuk, in some ways, Habakkuk's story was similar to the call to faith that we talked about last week with Abraham. Because if you remember, Abraham had faith and he believed the Lord in these bleak external circumstances. Right? He believed that the Lord would give him and Sarah a son even though they were really old. And as for Habakkuk, he similarly was in a bleak situation. But his situation was that Israel was being judged. It looked awful. And yet God had promised that he'd one day restore his people. And so like Abraham, what Habakkuk was called to do was live by believing what God had promised. But all that said then, and basic, that's what what Paul's doing. He's using this quote from Habakkuk to show that how people were saved and okay with God in the Old Testament, all the way back from Abraham, which is in the beginning of your Old Testament, all the way to Habakkuk, which is towards the end, people were only ever saved by faith. It wasn't ever that anyone's been good enough, any sinner's been good enough on their own, because people can't be good enough. Instead, it always was and still is. The righteous shall live by faith. And that's then confirmed in that second quote in verse 12. And to be honest, really quickly, this is a little more debatable. But it does seem there that when Paul writes, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them, he's now contrasting this way of living by following the law versus the way of living by faith. And you can see that because the quote he chooses there in verse 12 is from Leviticus. And in it, it talks about living by the law. While again in Habakkuk, it's about living by faith. And so you can see the contrast. In the Old Testament, those right with God lived by faith. But for those who only focused on works and the law, they were trying to live by doing, by works. But again, the issue with all of us is we can't do it. Right, we, we can't be good enough. That was the case in the Old Testament, and that's still the case today. And so those then are our answers to our first question. Why can't we, any of us, be right with God based on what we do? Simply stated, we sinners, we just can't. Right, we deserve God's curse on our own. And the Old Testament even taught that. And so just to be so crystal clear, let me say it one more time. If sinners like us try to be okay with God and just think we're on his side because of what we do, it will not work. 
Because the reality is for all of us, what our works in our lives, what our doings reveal, isn't that we deserve God's blessing and favor, but his curse and his disfavor. That's just the way it is. Because God is perfect and good and loving and we're sinners. We really are. And now, before we move on to our second question, just really quickly, I know in church this morning you may hear that and think, yeah, I know that, right? I know I can't be right with God based on what I do. And, and praise God if that's the case. <laughs> and you really know that. But, but the reason we really need to hear this, and the reason it's repeated in God's word again and again, is because think about it, no, mu- no matter how much we say we know it, and we probably do, but still daily and practically, don't we fall back into believing the opposite sometimes? <laughs> I mean, don't we fall back subtly thinking that I'm sort of okay with God right now because I've done that thing or because I haven't done that thing, right? Because I go to church or because I'm not so bad or I'm okay with God because I haven't given into that temptation in a while or because I'm doing my best or whatever it is. Even as Christians, we can start to think that that's really why we're sort of in a good relationship with God. But that's why we need to hear gospel texts like this because brother and sister in Christ, the truth is we are never in a right relationship with God based on what we do. What the Bible calls works or I think even better, doings. Instead, based on what we do, we're totally not in a right relationship with God. Based on what we do, we're cursed, not blessed. Based on what we do, we're not on the side of the good and loving and powerful God in the universe. Instead, we're against him. We're in a terrible situation based on what we do. Which fittingly then does lead us to our second section. And so we're in a terrible situation based on our works and our doings, but we are not there alone. Instead, that's exactly why Jesus came. And we're going to see that now in verse 13. And on this, before we even read this verse, I just want you to see that it's interesting what Paul's about to do to start verse 13 here. And I say that because for Paul, he usually, when he's writing sentences like this and making arguments, he starts his verses usually with a word to connect his sentences. Meaning, as you might have noticed, just as you're reading the Bible, Paul usually starts sentences like this with the words but, or because, or so, or now, or even just and, conjunctions as we call them. But I say that because although that's normal for Paul, and although we would expect verse 13 to start with the word but, notice he doesn't do that in verse 13. Instead, the first word emphatically in verse 13 is simply Christ. Christ. And scholars will point out that that's probably because Paul wanted to stress this contrast. Because think of the paragraph so far. If we don't obey everything, we're cursed. I mean, the Old Testament says that. The righteous live by faith. We can't, we can't do the law. Christ. It's with that backdrop in mind that we now see the centrality and the beauty of Christ. So with that said, if you remember, our second question now is, so what did Christ do for us? And the answer to that, look down, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
So Christ redeemed us, meaning he delivered us. He, 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 he rescued us by paying our debt. And he redeemed us from the curse of the law, meaning the law, which shows us, as we just talked about, that our works don't deserve God's blessing, but his curse because we're sinners. But finally, how did Christ do it? How did he redeem us from this curse of the law? And really, just think about it for a second. This is the central question of all humanity and all history. Because the question is, we're asking is, how can we, who are, we know are messed up, how can we be redeemed, saved, changed? What's our solution? The question that runs deep in all of our hearts, it's the question that has to do with us somehow being okay and having peace. And the question really is, how? We're sinners, so, so how could it be that we then receive God's blessing? Right, did, did Christ come to stir us up to become a lot better and earn it? Is that how? Right, or, or did he come to give us a second chance? Is, is that how? Or, or does he give us a new, different law that now we can follow perfectly? Or, or does Christ come and he just ignores our sin and sweep it all under the rug? Is that how? And the answer to all of those is no. None of those is Christianity. Instead, the answer is clear in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from this awful curse that's brought about by your and my sin and that we can't follow God's ways and law. And he did it by becoming a curse for us. That's it. And now with verses 10 through 12 before this already covered, hopefully this makes a bit more sense. Because remember, God's curse is simply him rightfully looking at our sin and judging and giving us what we deserve. It isn't God treating us meanly. It isn't him being harsh. Instead, it's him being fair. It's him being a good and right and even loving judge. Because we're the ones hurting each other. We're the ones hurting God's world. We're the ones rebelling against him. And so we deserve God's curse. And yet, Amazingly, Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. <laughs> Meaning he decided to take his people's sins and the curse that they deserve upon himself. <laughs> and, and this really shows us the heart of the gospel, the good news, because the good news of Jesus isn't technically that Jesus just took our sins. It's true. But more specifically, it's that Jesus, with those sins, also took upon himself the proper consequences of those sins. <laughs> right? In a sense, I know, I know that's obvious, and we probably know that, but I think it's helpful to distinguish that, because this means that the cross, we shouldn't just say, Jesus has my sins, that's true, but specifically, because he's taking my sins, he's taking the judgment, <laughs> the curse from God that I rightfully deserve. Or, or to use the picture from the Old Testament that we talked about earlier from Deuteronomy 27. Remember, God had his people stand on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal to symbolize the possibility of being blessed or being cursed based on what we do. Right? And if we were there and we only had the law, as Paul told us, we'd all be cursed because we're sinners. So we deserve to stand on Mount Ebal to forever and rightly receive God's curse and judgment based on what we do. But incredibly, what Christ did and what the good news is, is Jesus says to us, I'll go up there on Mount Ebal in your place. <laughs> and that happened on the cross. 
We're the sinners. We deserve God's curse forever. And as for Christ, he's the perfect son of God. He's never sinned. And yet in love, he comes to us and says, I'll take your place. I'll take your sins. And so I will go up and be cursed on that mountain. As it says here, I'll become a curse for you. Which then is why Paul quotes that Old Testament text there in verse 13 to end. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now this is now a quote from Deuteronomy 21. And in brief, the reason Paul seems to mention it here is because now you can see the contrast between us and Christ. Because remember, the Old Testament quote from verse 10, if you see there, starts with cursed be everyone who doesn't do everything in law. And that's us. But now in verse 13, the first words of this quote are actually exactly the same in Greek. It's cursed be everyone. But this time it's talking about someone cursed hanging on a tree. And so the point is clear. If we're of works, we're cursed. Verse 10. But guess what? Verse 13, Christ has provided a way, a solution. He became a curse for us. And when did that happen? On that tree. As God in the Old Testament foreshadowing the death of Christ a thousand years beforehand, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And amazingly, that was Christ, not us. He hung air on that tree, cursed in our place. And so that's the answer to our question, what did Christ do for us? We can't be right with God based on what we do. We can't. In fact, we deserve to be cursed based on what we do. But Christ took our sin Specifically, he took our curse. And and here's why this is so beautiful. Two quick reasons. First, this verse is beautiful, church, because in very brief, this really shows us how we're forever okay and saved. Meaning, as we briefly mentioned just a few minutes ago, this shows us that we aren't just helped in Christianity. We aren't just helped to do better, nor are we just given a second chance, because that wouldn't be good news, because we just mess up the second chance. (laughs) Instead, Christianity is about Christ himself went and took our curse for us. And that's why Jesus could say on the cross, it is finished because he really took our place. And so now for us, all we simply do is we receive what he has done. So that's the first reason this verse is beautiful. But then second, also think with me about what now verse 13 implies. And this will lead actually to our last section. So so this is beautiful, not only in that Christ took our curse, taking our curse, what then is implied? Well, it's that with God's right curses no longer on us, with, with Christ standing on Mount Ebal in our place, where do we now get to reside? On the opposite mountain. Because Christ has taken our place. We don't belong anymore on Mount Ebal, but Mount Gerizim. We are no longer cursed because that's done away with. It is finished. Instead, we now get to receive God's blessing. And, and, and this is why the gospel is so beautiful. Because let's be clear, in, in church and in all this, we're not just talking about being forgiven and being no longer cursed. We're not just talking about getting rid of all the negative things that we hate so much, as, as, as much as that is amazing. Instead, even more so, what we all as human beings made in the image of God want, what we need, what we all long for, is the positive things we were made for. 
It's God, it's peace, it's it's joy, it's being known and cared for and loved. It's God's blessing. It's standing on Mount Gerizim. And that's what Christ achieved for us on the cross. On the cross, he was cursed in our place, not just so we could be people who are forgiven and non-cursed, but instead, amazingly, so that we could be people who are forever blessed by God. Which fittingly then leads us to our third and section here and this will be verse 14 so in a way we were kind of getting ahead of ourselves there because now if you remember in verse 14 we're asking and what are some results of all of this and we ask that question because you can see it for yourself in verse 14 it starts literally with so that showing this is a result and in fact there's two so that's in verse 14 showing that we're going to see two results of all of this but to begin let's just read verse 14 so look down at your bibles christ became a curse for us Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So in the first half there, you can see the first result. It's so so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And each of those phrases there carries huge gospel truth. The blessing of Abraham is God's good news, which he promised all the way back to Abraham. And that blessing is now found only in Christ Jesus. And therefore, since it's in Jesus alone, and it's not found in being part of some ethnicity or some social group, Paul's final final point there in the first half there is that all the nations, right, the Gentiles, anyone from anywhere now can and on this. And that, specifically in this room this morning, who are Gentiles, is probably something we should be more thankful to Jesus for. So that's the first purpose, but that leads to the second purpose in verse 14 there. And here, you see Paul end the paragraph now by bringing up something, or technically bringing up someone who hasn't been talked about since verse 5, and that's the Spirit of God. Because in this purpose, Paul talks about how we, meaning Jew and Gentile now, through what Christ did, now we receive the Spirit through faith. And and quickly, as for this final purpose here, I just want to say, I know that we Gentiles might take this for granted now that it's been 2,000 years. And that's probably because we have no issue with believing and knowing that we as Gentiles as well get to have the Spirit of God. Uh, But think about it for a second. God's Spirit is God's spirit. I mean, it's God himself. And so if you want to think about it this way, the question of this paragraph and the question of the gospel isn't just who gets to be on God's side, but it's also who will God himself come near to and dwell in? Because remember, one of the promises of the Bible was that God himself would come near to his people in this new covenant by his spirit. And so the question is, who gets that promise? Is is it ethnic Israel? Is it those who obey the law good enough? And the answer is Paul's point here at the end of verse 14. The promise of the Spirit goes to those of faith. And so combining these two purposes, the Bible's saying that Christ did what he did once that all peoples and all the nations could come and be blessed in the gospel. But also number two, it's so that we may receive the promised Spirit which remember, who remembers God himself coming close to us now through faith. (laughs) We really summarize our whole paragraph most simply. This final verse shows us that God not only saves us and blesses us, but he comes near to us. 
and is in us. And all of that is not by works, but by faith, because Jesus became a curse for us. And, and again, all nations now, anyone from anywhere can get in on this, and it's because it's all about Jesus. And so all we need to do is believe him. That's the good news of the gospel. So that's our text, church, which leads us now to close with one final thing, one final thing. And for this, I just, I just want to look again at a two-word phrase in our passage that I think might bring all of this that we've been talking about really home to us. And that's just two words that are found in verse 11. Because there, if you remember, Paul's talking about being justified, being right with God. And in that context, he's talking about how being, you can't be right with God by the law. And then as I was studying this, I noticed that Paul says something in verse 11 that is rarer for him. And that's how he specifically says in verse 11, you can see it, that no one is justified before God by the law. And it's those before God words that I want us to focus on as we close. And that's because I think that's a really helpful phrase, a helpful reality to keep in mind on all this. (laughs) Because when all is said and done, church, that's really what we've been talking about here this morning. Meaning what we've been talking about here this morning isn't primarily about us just in church right now in the year 2022, nor are we ultimately just talking about our lives in the here and now. Instead, as Paul says, what we're discussing in all this talk about works and faith and blessing and cursing in the gospel is us before God. (laughs) That's the topic. And, And that could be translated, just so you know, as in the presence of God or in front of God. And that's then what we're talking about here this morning. Forget it for a second about so many things in our world and so many things in your life, as important as they may be. Forget just for a minute about uh, all of that and just try to think about being before God. (laughs) Because we're not only real, but God is real. And so we, in a sense, are before him now, but not only that, but when we die, we'll be before God, and when judgment day comes, we will be before God, right? And realizing that, then the questions for all of us are like, okay, then what is this God like that I'm before now and that I'll be before on judgment day? And not only that, but as for me, how can I be on his side now and then and forever? And that's where this gospel message really shines. Because first, when we think about being before God, we should realize that the God that we're in a sense before now and the God that we will be before on judgment day, yes, he is a holy God while we are not. And so if we come to him with our works, it will not work. We will be cursed. But also, I hope that after hearing this gospel, you realize that the God that we're before and that we will be before is also the one who has provided this way of salvation. (laughs) He's the God who has come in Christ Jesus and became a curse for us. And so first, thinking about being before God, we should think right now and on Judgment Day that we're talking about being before this massive holy God, but also this God of unfathomable love. But then second, not only does this before God phrase make us think about what God is really like, but finally, again, It makes us think practically of how we can be on his side. Because now and on judgment day, that's the biggest question for all of us. We will be before him. And the question is, are we on his side or against him? And so really it's, what is it? What will it be 
that gets us on his side, that makes us okay with him. And that's where, again, what we've been talking about this morning comes in. Because what we saw very clearly is on the one hand, Paul says, no one is justified before God by the law. No one. Meaning before God now and before God on judgment day, you and I cannot be okay with him by presenting what we've done. (laughs) That's because in God's presence, what we've done, no matter how good we think it is, in his presence, our works will only show, serve to show that we are sinners. And so what then is our only hope before God? Well, it's it's Christ. (laughs) It's it's God himself who came in Christ. And so, so very practically for each of us, that's what we've been really discussing this morning. We've been talking about being right with God and about what we will point to before God on Judgment Day. We've been talking about what we point to now and what we'll talk about Judgment Day or point to on Judgment Day. And what is it? Christ. Christ. It's that simple. I think about it this way. On Judgment Day, we won't point to our good works being a little better than our bad works and try to argue that that'll make us okay with God. We can't say, I know I messed up, God, but I tried to do my best and think that'll work. Instead, we as Christians say now and we will say then. In reality, this will happen in God's presence. We'll say, yes, holy and loving God, I I know that I deserve to be first, but Christ. (laughs) Christ. And church, that's, that's the gospel. And for all of us then, each either believe this for the first time this morning or believe it for the thousandth time this morning. But either way, let's leave here emphasizing Christ because Jesus himself 2,000 years ago became a curse for us. We could be saved, known, and forever loved and blessed. And so in our lives now and especially before God in the future, let's point to him because to him be all the glory.